see you too. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. And good to sort of see all you guys that are at home. It is great to be uh, with you this week. And uh, I love to see some faces that I'm not super familiar with. It's great to have you. Uh, and even if I am familiar with your face, it's great to have you too. We're glad to, uh, to have all of you. So Easter 2021, by the grace of God, looks a little bit different than Easter 2020 did. Amen? So though we're not quite back to normal yet, we're slowly getting back to normal. Who knows, maybe someday soon we'll be allowed to sing in church and put words on the screens and hand out Bibles like we always do. But until then, just glad to be together and just glad uh, to celebrate uh, today. You know, with everything that we've been through, certainly in the past year plus, if there's one thing that's clear, I think, as we look around, it's that our world has changed, right? And there are still, you know, some of our lives still feel increasingly uncertain, and I know that some of our hearts still continue to feel unsettled, and people are asking questions, you know, what is tomorrow, or what is next week, what is next month going to look like? And people are looking for some sense of peace, because what's happened to us is that, in many respects, the peace that we thought that we had has been disrupted. And if your experience is anything like my experience, what it seems is that the noise of the world and the noise of our culture that's all around us just continues to get louder and it continues to get louder and it continues to get a lot less peaceful. And it's ironic, but all of these voices that are trying to speak calm and speak peace into the midst of this growing list of whether they're personal or political, different problems and issues, all those voices that they're doing is they're just adding to the confusion. And yet what a blessing that on this Easter morning, the one voice, right, that we need to worry about, it's that voice of the empty tomb that again cries out and speaks peace. Because in the midst of all of this that's going on, we can continue to be at peace in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the Prince of Peace. And Jesus as the Prince of Peace, it's one of those prophetic names that's given to Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. Long before he was born, it was promised of him that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, you know, we look around, and the question that so many people ask is, you know, in a, in a world that's filled with such strife and such division, even with so much war and violence, it is sometimes difficult to see how Jesus could at the same time be this all-powerful God who is active in human history and yet also be the prince of peace and the very embodiment of peace itself. And yet what we see is that physical safety and political harmony don't necessarily reflect the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring, at least not this time, right? Not this time in his first coming. 
And normally we consider this title of the, the Prince of Peace. When do we consider it? We consider it during the Christmas season. And yet it was actually not at his birth, but it was at his death, right? It wasn't at Christmas, but it was at Easter that we see the fulfillment of the reality of Jesus as our Prince of Peace because he purchased our peace on his cross. Now, I know there may be some of you with us today or, or maybe just joining us uh, online. Maybe this whole God thing, maybe this whole Easter morning idea is maybe new or it's unknown to you in a, in a real personal sense. But what I want to tell you is that God wants to meet you here today and he wants to meet you right where you are, wherever you are. Jesus wants to meet all of us wherever we are. He wants to meet us in our doubt and in our uncertainty, maybe even our anxiety or whatever you are feeling this morning. Jesus wants to meet you there and he wants to provide you with that peace. So let's pray. We're going to dive into the scriptures and we're going to see what, uh, what God has to say about that. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning and we thank you for the opportunity to be here together and to celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray as we go to your word that you would open our minds, Lord, give us understanding. We pray that the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord, that he would be the one to lead us and to guide us into truth, Lord, as we pray every time we open your word. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church today. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, of course, today it's Easter Sunday, right? And here we are gathering with millions, multiplied millions of Christians all around the world celebrating what is the culmination of a series of the three greatest events in all of human history. Beginning, you know, Friday, we observed, of course, the death of Jesus on the cross as the, the full and the satisfying payment for our sins. Then his burial there in that garden tomb. And then the capstone this morning, his triumphant resurrection from the dead on the third day, right? That day in which the Lord Jesus, as we saw so well stated in the video, the day that he demonstrated his power over death, he conquered sin and death, and it's his ability to not only have resurrection life for himself, but then to share that life with each and every one of us, simply through our faith in him. And it's his resurrection from the dead. It is both the culmination of, it is the foundation for everything else that Jesus said and everything else that Jesus did because it's the resurrection that validates every one of his claims. It's the day, today's the day on which he secured for us all of the blessings that he now imparts to us. And there's just one of those that we want to consider this morning, and that's the peace that Jesus provides to us. And to do this, if you would turn with me to the book of Romans, if you have a Bible, we'll be in chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, unfortunately, we're not supposed to hand out Bibles like we usually do, but we'll have the words of the text on the screen 
uh, for you this morning. Romans chapter 5, we'll see the Apostle Paul. In just the first five verses of the chapter, he's really going to reveal to us the kind of peace that Jesus provides for us. The book of Romans, perhaps like no other letter of the Apostle Paul, it so wonderfully explains to us in such a systematic way really what are the theological realities that are behind and that undergird the entirety of our Christian life. And in fact, of the many ways that you can approach the book of Romans, perhaps the simplest way is to look at the letter to the Romans like the journey of an individual who first is coming to faith and then moving forward in their faith. And so, you know, at the beginning of the book of Romans, we have the first three chapters where kind of a person just like you or just like me discovers from God himself the real kind of condition that we are in. We are in an unsaved, condemned condition, and we're made aware of that condition in the eyes of God. And then toward the end of chapter 3, we're given God's great news of forgiveness and how it's found in Christ. It's sometimes referred to as the Romans road of salvation. And it's there in that chapter where we hear the gospel right, in the course of our life. And then in chapter 4, as the gospel is explained in its fullness, we become saved, right? putting our faith in Jesus. And the chapter ends with Paul's explanation of what happened through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, Paul says of Jesus that he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Or as another simpler translation puts it, that he was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So we are saved, we are justified, we are declared righteous in the sight of God because of that sacrifice of Jesus. We've been forgiven of our sins. And then in the entire rest of the book of Romans, from chapter 5 onward, Paul begins to detail so many of these blessings of Christianity, those blessings that go even beyond just the marvel of simply and wonderfully being forgiven by God of our sins. That in and of itself we would think would be enough. And yet Paul says what? But wait, right? there's more. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, therefore, Having been justified by faith or having been fully forgiven because of our faith in Jesus, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only forgiven, not just justified by God, but he says that we finally are at peace with God. So Jesus provides our peace with God. Now, as a Christian, you may remember that before we surrendered to God and had that, made that decision to trust in Jesus as God's provision for our salvation, what the Bible teaches is that all of us were at war with God. Whether we were conscious of it or not, it doesn't change the fact that we were at war with him. Each of us once lived a life, maybe are still living a life, 
in open rebellion to the authority of God and the position of God and the commandments of God, the sovereignty of God, his rightful lordship over our lives. We lived lives that were completely independent of him in our lifestyles, in our decisions, our self-will, our self-determination. Each of us were waging this kind of a private, personal war, living a life in a kind of a rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, just in case you think I'm being a little dramatic on a Sunday morning, here's just a couple of verses that kind of give us a little clarity on this as the Bible sees it. In Romans 8, Paul will write that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So we waged war at one time in our life against God, in our thought life. Right? We were constantly giving our minds over to anything and to everything but to him. So in all of those things that we thought. Colossians chapter 1, it says that you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So we waged war at one time in our life against God through the life that we lived, the things that we did that were all contrary to his commandments. So not simply in the things that we thought, but the Bible says also the things that we did. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So here, Paul says that we, at one point in our life, waged war against God by continuously giving ourselves gladly to all of those different temptations that the devil and the world would bring into our lives. Right? That, that voice and his proddings and his leadings. And he says we did so over and over again. And finally, James writes, adulterers and adulteresses. Now there's an attention grabber, right? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we waged war at one time in our life against God when we chose friendship with the world. We chose acceptance of the world and we chose the applause of the world at the expense of our obedience to God, at the expense of seeking after his applause and his approval. So, happy Easter, everybody, right? <laughs> now, I know... This is kind of a, a, a big dose of reality, right, on an Easter Sunday morning, isn't it? And yet, what Paul is telling us here is that simply upon becoming a Christian, that this lifelong war with God has now come to an end. And it came to an end the way that all conflict comes to an end. It came to an end by us surrendering to God on his terms, trusting in Jesus. And immediately there was peace. 
because the conflict was finally over. There was this surrender that occurred and we surrendered to the only way that is provided that this war can come to an end and that's by trusting fully in his son and in his savior, in his solution to our problem of our sin. And at that moment, the war was over and we were finally at peace with the one who created us. And we probably don't do this nearly enough but just to take a moment and to stop and to think about what a tremendous weight is lifted off of a human life the moment that occurs. Maybe for some of you, you remember when you first became born again. I mean, just how lighter our whole life became by virtue of having that conflict with God, right? That constant going against him and going against his ways, all of that, but having all of that lifted off of us when we were finally born again. And just to stop and to realize, I am no longer at war with God. I'm no longer engaged in this daily fight against him. I'm not in this battle with him that no one could ever have any hope of winning. But now to understand that I'm on his side, now I'm on the winning side, right? Now I'm going in his direction, I'm living life his way, and I'm living life as he created it to be lived. It is hard enough, isn't it, to live life in this fallen world without being at war with God on top of everything else without being in a place where you're constantly fighting his authority and fighting his ways, that is an awful way to live. You think about the toll that it takes upon a person. It's a mess. And yet it's not until we actually become a Christian that we can truly realize the weight that's been lifted off of us. That weight not only of the sin that we were carrying, but that weight of all of our efforts trying to get God to accept us through our own hard works. Now, this was something that Paul, of course, knew a whole lot about. Paul knew the misery of that. Because remember, when the apostle Paul was saved, he was a deeply, deeply religious man. And what this reminds us is that the war against God can just as equally be waged, you know, from the realm of of debauchery and paganism, but it can also just as easily be waged right from the realm of self-righteous religion and man-made traditions. Any of those times where we're stuck in a system where we are constantly and tirelessly trying to earn God's approval. So in all of that religion, we can still be at war until we come to the realization that our peace with God is based solely on the grace of God. Look at what Paul writes next at the beginning of verse 2. He's just said that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this is good news, isn't it, on an Easter morning? Instead of standing in rebellion against God, 
We now stand in his grace and we now live under that grace. Just think about how wonderful it is as a Christian to wake up and to know that no matter what else I'm facing in life, I don't need to be worried about God. I don't need to be wondering whether he's for me or whether he's against me today. But I can wake up knowing I'm on the right side of God, I have this peace with God, and I'm now living in the grace of God. Knowing that his attitude toward me in this relationship now is one of peace and that he wants to be a source of peace in my life and knowing that he's at peace with me. And because of that, we now have this access to him that we never enjoyed before because we've been accepted by him. We have this access to the grace of God. Now, the, the Greek word that's used here in the original text for the word access it speaks about kind of the, the privilege of being able to even approach or maybe of being introduced to someone who's of a, a royal or, or even a divine sort of a line. It's to enter into the presence of someone whose presence we're not worthy to enter into. And so what this tells us is that our salvation has now given us this privilege of approaching God. We now have this, that you know, provided this, this personal relationship in spite of the huge gap that exists between us and him, that infinite gap that exists between a holy creator and the sinful creation. Imagine it, just sitting here on this Easter morning, wherever it is that you're sitting this morning, you are in a relationship with the creator of the universe. And we now have this access to him, which is absolutely unlimited. Right, that as the writer to the Hebrews says, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anytime, all the time. Because you're at peace with him because of that mighty sacrifice of Jesus. Now this throne of God that would make us tremble otherwise, now it's accessible to us. And this is something that I don't think we can accurately even put into words how wonderful this is. So often you'll hear somebody try to say, you know, imagine being in the presence of you know, the, the president of the, you know, or the queen, or in the presence of a king, or whatever. But the, the point is that those comparisons don't even begin to describe what we are talking about here. We have no point of reference, right? But certainly, for any Jew who had lived under the old covenant, the way that Paul had prior to his conversion, they would begin to understand that this was a jaw-dropping reality just to think about. It would have left any Old Testament saint in absolute amazement. That here is this access to God, personally, right, individually, with no more 
daily sacrifices or weekly sacrifices or monthly sacrifices or even annual sacrifices. There was this access to God with no more priests, no more high priest, no more court of the Gentiles or court of women or any of these things that sort of kept us away from having access. No more even if you were a Jew did you have to stop short of the holy place, much less be able to even get close to the holy of holies where the actual glory of God dwelt. That's all gone. And all of this access now that we have is solely on the basis of grace because of this peace that the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus has provided to us. It is too much, it is too mind-boggling for us to really realize. But what we need to understand is this is not just words on a page. This is our everyday reality that we live in that we have this access now. Now, if you're here this morning, or if you're tuned in with us today, and you're not yet a Christian, it's important for you to realize that until you trust in God's Son, right, until you trust in Jesus to be the forgiveness for your sins, no matter how good a person you may be in all other areas, and yet the failure to do just that one thing alone is to continue, the Bible says, to live in rebellion against God. It's to continue to wage war with God. Every day that you live your life under your own oversight, right, your own self-will, as opposed to the God who created you, right, the God to whom you belong, every day you reject reject that single sacrifice that he has provided every day is to continue to be at war with him and to just realize the incredible weight which will be lifted off of you the moment that you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and then begin to stand in that grace of God and then you'll begin as Paul says here in that same verse then you'll begin to rejoice in hope of the glory of God, to rejoice in nothing less than the hope of heaven. So Paul's talking here about this peace that comes with a confidence that one day as Christians, that each one of us are going to stand there and we are going to participate in the very glory of heaven itself. And understand this, the word hope as it's used in the Bible and as it's used here, it doesn't simply mean something that we would wish for or something that we would want to happen. That's kind of the way that we use hope today. But hope in the Bible and this word here, it speaks more so of a confident expectation of something that we know will happen. It's only a hope because it hasn't already happened yet. But there's no question at all of the assurance of the fact that we will one day stand in the glory of that heavenly scene. You remember Jesus promised us as his followers in John 14, he said that in my father's house are many mansions and if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
So we will spend eternity in the very presence of Jesus in a place that he's prepared for us. Now there is a peace in that. Now isn't there? And you think about just this in terms of all of the different worries of life. And you think about this in the, in the way that people are getting crushed under the weight of their worries. But to think about how huge of a worry, right? This is an eternal worry that we can now cross off of our worry list. How wonderful it is as Christians that we don't need to spend one moment wondering about what's going to happen to us at the moment of our death. We don't need to spend a moment of time in our lives wondering whether or not we're going to spend eternity in the perfection of heaven. Right? I never give that a second thought as a Christian. And it certainly isn't because of some perfect life that I'm living. Ask any of my kids, right? But it's because of the perfect life that Jesus led. It's because of the greatness of his sacrifice. It's because of the faith that I've placed in that to be what saves me. That's peace, isn't it? That's true peace. And you just need to look around at the world, right? Or look at your life if you're not yet a Christian. And you look at all of the different places that everyone is searching or trying to store up peace. They're trying to find it over in this area. And then they're trying to put a little bit more over here in this area and trying to hedge up a little bit more over there, whether it's in terms of relationships or of money or resources or education, whatever it might be, people are trying to achieve some sense or some semblance, some sort of peace in every possible and any conceivable way. And yet the Bible and the empty tomb cries out to us this morning that the origin point of peace in our lives, a true peace, a genuine peace, it always has to begin by first establishing that peace with God and by simply beginning that relationship with him. And that without that peace with God, we will never know peace in life. Because here's what happens with peace. When we finally are at peace with God, what we find is then it starts to spread to all of the other areas of our life as well, doesn't it? It was Augustine who once wrote in this regard, he said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Right? Our peace with God in our lives then produces the peace of God in our lives, no matter what it is that we might face in our lives. Look what, look what Paul writes for us next in what will be our final verses for the morning, not only based on this sacrifice of Jesus, not only do we have peace with God and access to God and stand in the grace of God, and not only will we one day rejoice in eternity in the glory of God, but then he writes in verse 3, and not only that, right? But wait, there's more, right? He says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, these verses certainly deserve their own day. But for today, the peace that Paul is describing here is a peace that flows directly from our peace with God, and it's the peace of God. That's what now comes into our lives because we are now able to live our lives with the confidence that none of these hardships that we will ever face as a Christian, none of it will ever be wasted, but that God is aware of it, he sees it, he knows about it, and he will always use all of that difficulty to fashion our godly character and to prepare us and to deepen our hope of heaven. No matter how difficult any tribulation might be, it's always working out something inside of us. In fact, that's how some of the, the translations actually translate this, that tribulation worketh all of these things into our lives. Now that word tribulation, of course, we've seen it if you've been with us in Acts recently, we've looked at it more recently in the Revelation. It's our good friend, the word philipsis. And it means simply pressure. It means crushing. And you remember it talks about the crushing of grapes to get all the juice out or the crushing of wheat to remove the chaff and get the, the meat of the wheat out. Or it's that same crushing in ancient times that they would inflict on an individual as a form of either interrogation or of torture where they would put that huge board on top of you and they would lay a huge boulder on top of that and it would crush the air out of your chest, out of your lungs until you told them what they wanted to hear. And so this word philipsis, this crushing, it speaks of the kind of a trial in our lives that crushes us. The kind of trial, if you will, that takes your breath away. It's the kind of trial that we go through where we might look back in the middle of the trial and we might say, you know what, I am not sure I'm going to make it through this trial. It's the kind of trial that I know that there's many of you here in our church that are going through this, even this morning. And yet what Paul tells us is that we can actually glory in that tribulation because we have the peace of God that has come to us because we're at peace with God. We can face these kinds of terrible tribulations with the confidence that we know that God will never allow them to overwhelm us. And this is the very thing that Jesus promised us. He made this promise just this past week, if you will, moments before his own crushing tribulation on the cross. In the upper room, he said to them this. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So Jesus says that he has overcome the tribulation that the world will bring to us, which means that he will overrule it for his purposes in our lives. And the reality of that brings us peace. I love what's often said that every believer is either overcome 
or is an overcomer. And it's this peace of God at work in our hearts as we stand fast in God's grace that enables us to overcome whatever it is that's threatening to overcome us. In John chapter 14, Jesus said this. He said, peace I leave with you. And we read that, right? And especially this morning, we think, wow, it can't get any better than that. It can't get any better than Jesus pronouncing to us as his disciples that he is leaving us with peace. And that, then he goes on, though, in that same verse, and he says something even stronger. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a peace that will keep your heart from trouble. And he speaks rest and he speaks peace to troubled hearts as only he can because only he is the Prince of Peace. Because the peace that the world offers is so often based either on distraction or on deliberate blindness. Sometimes it's even based on lies. Right? The peace that the world offers us so often comes from escape or avoidance, and yet Jesus offers us a better peace. It's a real peace that the world can't offer to us. Because if we only know peace the way that the world can give us peace, if we only know peace during times in which our, you know, both our national and our international circumstances are seemingly peaceful, and then on top of that, to make sure that all of our personal circumstances are also peaceful, if we're depending on all of those things to happen all at the same time, then we will never really know peace in this life. Or if we do, we're going to know it just in fleeting moments. The only way we can know peace in this life is to be able to trust in the one who is greater than all of those things around us, greater than all of those things inside of us that can so quickly take our peace away. And Jesus is the only one who is that. He's the only one who really can do that. He brings this priceless, supernatural peace into human life that safely then sees us through the tribulations in life. I love Isaiah chapter 26, 3. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There's this secret kind of a trust and a confidence that we have in God, right? This God of infinite power who we know is working all things together in accordance with his perfect will. Right? And this peace that the Prince of Peace, Jesus, can provide to us, it is a peace that is powerful enough to be greater than every problem that we have, right? to be greater than every circumstance that we're in. And Jesus has that, but then for him to give us that peace. He said, my peace I give to you. That's the peace that he's given us. And Jesus is that and he does that and there is such comfort in that. And that's why 
Paul could write later to the Philippians that they should be anxious for what? Nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we entrust all of our anxieties to him and his peace, it says, it will, it will garrison our hearts or it will keep our hearts. It will protect our hearts. This is the peace that Jesus gives to us. Right? And it completely passes understanding. So as we close this morning, right, we, we've kind of considered this reality of the kind of peace that Jesus provides. He provides it through his resurrection that we celebrate this morning. But there's one more, I think, wonderful picture that I think will help us to understand both our peace with God and this peace of God that are now ours. Remember back there in verse 2 when Paul said that through Jesus we have this access to the Lord, this access to his peace and to his grace and that we're standing in that. And we had said that this word access, you remember it was this word that talked about introducing or ushering someone into the presence of royalty or even divinity. And it's as if Paul was saying that Jesus ushers us into the very presence of God. He opens the door for us to the presence of the King of Kings. And that when that door is opened, what we found was grace. We didn't find condemnation. We didn't find judgment or vengeance, but we found sheer, undeserved, incredible kindness of God. And then we were at peace with God. And it's more wonderful than we can imagine just in and of itself. But that very same word that Paul uses for access, right, of us being brought into the presence of the peace of God, it had another picture that that very same word was associated with. Because this was also the very same word that was used in ancient Greek to describe the place that ships would come into to find refuge from the waves and the storms out in the open sea. It was the word that they would use for a safe harbor or a safe haven. And so in this sense, we get the sense that as long as we have been trying to depend on our own efforts, our own efforts to find peace with God and our own efforts to kind of produce the peace of God, as long as we were trying to do that, we were like storm-tossed sailors striving against an open, stormy sea which constantly threatened to overwhelm us completely. And yet now that we've surrendered to Jesus, now that we have found forgiveness in Jesus, all based on the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that now we have been ushered safely into this shelter of God's grace and of his peace. And now we know the calm of depending not on the peace that we can produce for ourselves, not on the, the peace that the world can provide to us, but we know the calm of the shelter and the refuge and the peace that only the Prince of Peace can give to us.
because of Jesus, we have entry into this peace and into the presence and into the protection of the King of Kings. We have this entry into the shelter of the grace of God. Now bear with me because we couldn't close a service like this without pointing people to the very words of Jesus in what is the most famous evangelistic encounter anywhere in the Bible. And that, of course, is the conversation that's recorded for us in John chapter 3 between Jesus and a very religious, a very learned man named Nicodemus. And if you don't yet know Jesus this morning, then these words are absolutely for you today. And for the rest of us who do, then they should be a sweet reminder of God's grace in our lives. Because you remember in this conversation that Jesus said to this man, Nicodemus, he said, most assuredly, I say to you that unless one is born again, that he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus kind of thinks on this, and he looks at it from a purely physical, kind of a natural sense, and so he asks a very logical question. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus answers him and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what does it mean to be born again the way that Jesus describes it here? Most simply, it's talking about this spiritual rebirth. Because every single one of us listening today, we've been born physically, but Jesus just said that we also need some sort of this spiritual birth in order to have a spiritual relationship with God. So that raises the question of how can one be born again? And so conveniently, later in that very same conversation, Jesus explains exactly this and speaks what are the most well-known words in the Bible. It's the most well-read, the most read verse in the most read book of the most read book in the history of mankind. It's John 3:16, which just happens to concern how to be born again. It's when Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is how a person is born again. And that verse, those words from Jesus, listen, they are the single most important word that any human being will ever hear in the course of their lifetime. And that includes me, and that includes you this morning. That God so loved the world, that's you. That he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus. That whoever, right, that's us again, isn't it? Whoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What the Bible explains is that we become born again by, first of all, accepting God's assessment of us. 
accepting that we were at war with him, that we are sinners in need of a savior, and then being willing to repent or to turn away from those things and to turn away from that self-will in our life and then to put our faith in Jesus, trusting that his sacrifice was sufficient not only to cover the sins of everyone else, but to cover the sins that we've committed. And when a person does that, when a person trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then the single greatest miracle known to mankind occurs. And that is nothing less than the fact that God Almighty, in the person of the Holy Spirit, then comes into our lives, takes up residence in us, and that's when we are born again. That's the spiritual birth that is every bit as real as the physical birth that we've each experienced. So not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins, but we are now provided with this capacity to have this relationship with God and to be at peace with him. We have this eternal reality personally of everlasting life in the glory of God And we have even now, right now, we have the peace of God. Amen? So Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. And we do pray that if there is anyone here this morning, Lord, or if there's anyone who's tuned in with us, Lord, or watching even after the fact, if you're here and you have not yet made that kind of a commitment to Jesus, Lord, if you're, if you're still trying to depend on your own efforts or your own goodness to get God to accept you, if you want to end the war today with God and you want to surrender to him on his terms and simply accept the gift of Jesus, the gift of forgiveness that he's given you, You simply need to ask him that in the privacy of your heart. There are no special words to say. There's no prayer to repeat, but to simply say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Jesus, I want to follow after you. And I want to know this peace that you can provide. And if you do that, he will come into your heart. You will be born again. You'll have the assurance of heaven. He will quicken your spirit and um, you'll be born again and you'll have a desire to follow after him and to, to seek after the things of him. For the rest of us this morning who've already made that commitment, how we thank you for a morning like this, Lord, where we can just be reminded of the the depth of the truths that undergird this new life that we have. To be reminded of the, the richness of the reality that we now live in, Lord, that could only be dreamt of by those Old Testament saints. So, Father, we pray that we would take advantage of that access, Lord, that we would walk in your grace, Lord, that we would live lives of peace. And we thank you for today. And we thank you for the resurrection, Lord, that we celebrate. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I think the team's going to lead us in one more song. And then uh, I'll be back and uh, dismiss us to our Easter Sunday.